Hi, this is Ali Iskana from Islam and Liberty Podcast. Before we start, I just want to quickly introduce this series, a special four-episode long series featuring Ali Salman, and this is the very first episode. Ali will soon be releasing his book, Islamic Economic Framework, a reintroduction of Islamic economics through a classical Islamic thinking. This episode, we talk about the three principles that make up Islamic economics. Welcome to the Islam and Liberty Podcast. If you enjoy and wish to find out more about us, find us on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. Today we have a four-episode long series that presents a new way to rediscover the principles of commerce and economics in Islamic contexts. Uh, joining us today is Ali Salman, who is CEO and a founding member of Islam and Liberty Network and CEO of Institute of Our Democracy and Economic Affairs, a think tank based in Malaysia. He will be releasing his book, Islamic Economic Framework, which he writes further about this topic and his findings. Um, so to start it off, uh, I'm just going to quickly talk about the five prince objectives uh, of Sharia that is first proposed by Imam Ghazali and then later expanded by Imam Shatibi. And they are protection of life, protection of religion, protection of reason and mind, protection of lineage or family, protection of property or wealth. So would you say that this is uh, all of economics basically just fall into this five objectives of Sharia law? So these uh, five objectives, um, have, you have um, appropriately summarized, are known as Makasid uh, Sharia. And the um, uh, when Imam Shatibi and Imam Ghazali introduce uh, these uh, important principles, the basic rationale uh, was them uh, before them was: uh, should we take uh, uh, Sharia, uh, which is the uh, the, the Islamic legal framework in a strict legal um, manner or should we look at the, the objectives of God's words? And so there, this has become an important part of Islamic thought since Imam Shatabi um, uh, expanded uh, on, on, on this particular list. And later on, it has continued and to, to this date, the discussion on the objectives of Sharia, uh, public policy framework of Sharia is ongoing. Uh, and I think that uh, this, this list is itself has evolved, but these uh, original five uh, components, these original, original five elements are still very helpful hmm. to understand uh, what is the role of the government in a society. So this is not about just economic uh, role. This is about uh, the role of the government in protection of mm -hmm. life and property, of, of family, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And so these are all, of course, modern terms which we use today. But thinking that these Makas uh, Sharia were introduced about 800 years ago is mm -hmm. quite amazing. It's quite an amazing intellectual journey in its, in its own right. Right. Because you do, you believe that any interpretation should not be stagnant, and like the Islamic interpretation should move with the time, so that it could constantly evolve. Yeah, it's not that I believe so. Mm. I think this has been historically the case. I see that the interpretation of Islamic law, the Sharia, uh, has been done by human beings, mm. and and Sharia itself has not remained static. Uh, it has evolved with times. And this evolution we see both in at the conceptual level, uh, but also at a practical level. 
So as Muslims embraced other civilization, they adopted the legal codes of, of other societies, of other governments, of other states, and they integrated and they assimilated that into their own cultural ethos. And uh, so that uh, interpretation um, is, is an ongoing. And even today, uh, we have scholars and we have uh, experts who are still uh, discovering new meanings of, of Quran, new meanings of Hadith. And uh, they are also discovering uh, the uh, debating the uh, Asul Fiqh, the principles of Islamic jurisprudence. Um, I, th I think overall, uh, I, I, I would say that this has evolved uh, and, and become very mature discussion. Okay, interesting. So maybe you can just like move on to the first principle, you think. Even if this is, uh, I mean, this is the five principle of Sharia. And, but under economics, do you think that is a bit, what are, what are the three principles you think that is a bit more focused rather than, because the Sharia is for a general uh, state law, yes? So the economic ideas, uh, and in this book, you have stated that there are three principles, and I assume that these are supposed to be the more focused parts of the um, within the Sharia law. Can you talk about the first one? So as I as I speak about um, Islamic economic framework, I'm I'm conscious that uh, this uh, is a, possibly an addition in a very vast and rich literature on Islamic economics and on an Islamic views on an economic organization of society. So, uh, but to simplify uh, the way I understand the objectives of Sharia in an economic framework is, is this, that essentially Islam as a religion offers uh, three broad but definite principles and theoretical foundations of economic organization. The, the, the first principle is uh, what I would say uh, theory or principle of ownership. Uh, the second principle is the theory of wealth creation and third principles of theory of wealth distribution. So it's a continuum. So if we go back to the first principle, the theory of ownership, which we can then subsequently divide into two spheres. One is what is private property and second is what is public property. And the Islamic uh, pretexts uh, as defined in Quran and as also defined by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu injunctions and his conduct is very clear that Islam respects private property. Islam respects private property uh, for all individuals. Uh, so if you uh, have built a house, if you have, uh, if you are owner of a farmhouse, uh, cropping, you, you own you're in a factory, you, have, you are owner of stock exchange shares. Anything which you have legally and ethically acquired is yours. And there is no upper limit on how much you can acquire. Ah, okay. And uh, not only that, there is also, um, uh, there, there, there is this sense of uh, an encouragement of, uh, I would say, wealth creation. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about wealth creation later. Yeah. I think... I, let me just talk about the second aspect of the private property principle, mm. uh, the, the, the theory of ownership. The first part is private property, but the second part is public property. So it is very interesting that uh, the uh, in, in Islamic concepts, the, the land, for instance, natural resources which exist underneath, uh, whether under the sea, whether under the, the land, uh, are divine property. 
but it is understood that in an Islamic historical perspective that uh, the actually the state itself would embody that. Mm. So kind of a collective organization, collective ownership of these assets. So, um, so basically all divine property has to be taken care by the state without... Um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's more complicated than that. So mm, for instance, okay. in, a, in, a, in a situation where the, the state is not there, but kind of a communal or collective ownership is there, that is a good replacement. Wherever the resources which can be, uh, which are of common uh, use and for the resources in which there is no significant human effort involved. So if you are a, if as an individual, you know, you have uh, harvested in a piece of land, that land become, becomes yours land, uh, becomes private property. But let's say if you are a nominal owner of a piece of land, uh, which uh, the state has given to you or you have inherited, and this is very interesting, then the Islamic law suggests that you cannot just own it and not use it. So if the land is lying unproductive and there is difference of opinion of how long, how many years can this be the case, but normal consideration is that for three years, then actually what was private no longer remained private. It was belonged to the state. The state will have authority to take it back. Uh, but what if like say the land is, or whatever it may be, is considered um, unusable. But let's say I own a plot of a desert, as for example. Even though nobody can really use it, I own it. Would it go back to the state eventually? If, if, even though I can't work on it, or at least to my capacity, because somebody else might find a use for a plot of sand. It's, it's, a, it's a very good point. I think the spirit behind the theory of ownership is actually the productive use of that piece of property. So if there's desert, and, and we know that, well, deserts can also have resources. Uh, it, so it can have mineral resources, it can have uh, petroleum uh, resources. So if... Um, if there's a discovery that these resources are there and still a private ownership is actually negating the use of that discovery mm -hmm. to somehow become an obstruction in that process, then in the interest of public goods, in the interest of social benefit, the state can, according to the Islamic understanding of uh, property, can take it back. Right. Uh, so any discovery, say like, if let's say I didn't know there was... Um, Let's say there's a useless that useless plot of land, and then it is discovered that you we can find oil there, and then I have to work on it, uh, or else it will be state used. Yeah, the idea is to encourage, uh, you know, to 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 to, to work hard and mm -hmm. make the discovery process. And there's one very interesting incident in Prophet uh, Muhammad's life when he allotted a piece of land, mm -hmm. uh, like it become a private property of an individual. Uh, but then after that allotment was done, uh, it was discovered that uh, a, a salt mine was discovered hmm. on that piece of property. So it was not known before this? It wasn't known before that, but it was discovered. And then Prophet actually cancelled that lease. And he said that, well, that is now no more a private property. The state will now own it in the name of the society. Right. But it, it can, you know, at a practical level, it can happen that the state can still give the rights of development to that individual or any individual. That is mm. a matter of details. Right. But at a, at a principled uh, level, the, the state took it back. 
Right, right, right. Because uh, the state can still allow them to work on it, even though they don't own it. Yeah. Uh, but in a sense, they still own it. Do you know they, what I they, mean? They own it in the sense of using they can it, work it yeah. uh, but uh, they may not have the legal uh, absolute ownership. Uh, on it uh, so it's easily comparable with let's say you're you know you have built a house which is strictly of your use mm-hmm. you have a factory which you are using mm. for a private production of a certain goods and then it will be yours right so so first of all there is no natural naturally existent houses right so, right. so we, we build houses unlike the salt mines we do not build the salt mine so the principle you didn't you you discovered it so you mm. can reap the benefit of it right but then there are the limitations so that same kind of ownership would not be applicable to a factory or a house or piece of land which you have developed i see i see so it's not like i my, i would lose my private property just because something naturally was discovered yes. it's like in the sense that it has to be able to be used and then it would become and then it would be considered to be nationalized in a sense yes yeah. that's uh, that's about right i get it what if there is something that we did not know we did not know this material we had was useful before and then we found a use for it would that material suddenly become a, a part of defined property if let's say um say for say mercury we don't really have any useful thing for it so would it be uh, would it still be considered divine property uh, even though technically it's useless outside of thermometers for example yeah so in in that sense i mean we were talking about maybe the uh, the ownership the divine ownership um, uh, and as i said this if we apply the salt uh, mine principle to mm. this 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 question then the results which we arrive is uh, is this uh it can be it it can be considered as a private property uh as long as the public use materials are not discovered but let's say if the individual who owns it who owns the land and then this mercury is is discovered and then there is uh i guess if we follow the spirit then we will it and we should arrive at this conclusion that if that person is capable and is offering a solution of discovery uh, of development then uh, then there perhaps there is no need of uh, the nationalization of that land again where we started from uh, the objectives that the makasa right? so if mm. the if the spirit behind this whole division of private property and public property is fair use and more productive use uh, and and better access to more human beings of a common uh, natural resource then we should just follow that spirit a bit, but be a bit flexible on the exact arrangement so if let's say um something that is perceived to be abundant uh say like fresh water that's supposed to be public use no matter mm. what yes but like if we it has become scarce for example would it be in the right for a state uh, to control it even though you know by right it should be uh, properly used by everyone else it's a complex issue the the fresh water in their definition of theory of of ownership belongs to the state mm. in the first case ah yes okay and uh, so if it becomes uh, scarce then of course then maybe the 
uh, there, there could be the need of more uh, rules and, and regulations there and see that you know wastage is not occurring. But there is also finer detail here and, and that is uh, the uh, fresh water is, is okay free and, and owned by, by nature. But then the excess is different. So access to fresh water will mean that you will need to have an infrastructure. So maybe a, a, a pipeline uh, and then filtration mechanism, then bottling mechanism and then sanitation mechanism. So of course, these are built by human beings and these are built at a certain cost, uh, which is both explicit and implicit. And then these costs have to be recovered. And, and, and therefore, on the face of it, you will say that uh, this, this all should become the elective property. But actually, if you unpack this and if you realize, oh, no, actually fresh water in its own right is no good use to anyone unless we develop the resource. Right. So that is the final distinction which we need to maintain while applying the theory of ownership here. So, uh, so something becomes private if you put you put the work into it, no matter what, no matter where it comes from, ultimately. Yes. yes? Ultimately, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's like those minerals, even though some maybe it's not discovered that they are they are useful, but if somebody has found a, a use for them, it's not like his work become mm. a national thing. Uh, it's not state owned. Like, of course, he would have the right to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then maybe we can like move on to your second principle, which is uh, wealth creation. So the second principle of Islamic pr uh, economic framework is uh, a theory or a principle of wealth creation. Uh, it has essentially two parts. So part one is that uh, Quran uh, mentions that uh, the wealth needs to be created uh, through voluntary trade mutual and mutual consent. So when we look into these words, mutual consent, voluntary trade, and wealth creation, we immediately arrive at an, a, a regulatory framework which will encourage you know, lesser and lesser restrictions on trade and which will encourage more commerce to flourish between individuals, between firms and individuals, between mm. firms and firms, between countries to countries. So what it means that it is talking about an open trade system. Uh, at a practical level, it will mean that an open trade can only exist if we have very limited number uh, and, and a low threshold of taxes, mm. right? So because that, especially the import tariffs, which countries can impose, can become a restriction on the open trade, on the voluntary trade. You know, the spirit of voluntary trade is that you and I as an individual uh, should be able to transact as much as we like uh, mm -hmm. without necessarily depending on a third party. And as I said in the, in, in, uh, in the, I think in the start that that third party will be regulation and will be government, but then how much? So I, I think that, that voluntary trade is very important. The second part of this principle of wealth creation is that uh, the concept of uh, free market pricing. Now that is very contentious because uh, most often we relate price controls with welfare, price control with social justice, mm -hmm. and I think uh, prices are rising of goods, then it's something bad happening, especially for the poor folks. 
uh, and if so our natural inclination is to control the price so that you know goods uh, fruits vegetables uh, flour rice everything is accessible to the most number of people so would you say that that there should not be price control in islam in islamic economics so uh, essentially i am saying yes uh, no price control but if you look at further again at a deeper level uh, and if you look at what happened a um, couple of times when actually people took this complaint to prophet muhammad when prices of goods were rising in the face of scarcity and the companions uh, actually demanded the prophet who was also the ruler of the state by that time to control the prices it was in medina and he declined to it he said prices belong to god and i am not going to be one who is raised in the day of judgment where someone might be having a claim against me he was referring to the traders not to the customers at that point that the price controls might have might have deprived these traders from genuine profits which they 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 have a share they 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 are rightfully own because they have brought goods in that time with hardship uh with they have incurred uh, incurred risks of loss on the way etc uh but again so this is the principle of price freedom but then there are so many regulations for consumer protection which mm-hmm. uh, islamic economic framework introduces right one can conclude that in this framework we have no price control but we have very strict and vigilant consumer protection framework in place i see can you like give me some example to how uh, he does it so again if you if you go back to the prophet's time uh, when he and remember he had uh, an as as a great experience of uh, of being an entrepreneur being a businessman himself mm. so he actually he understood the intricacies of business uh, at a at a micro and minute level so there was a practice of uh, deceiving the customers and the incoming trade caravans in the in medina where the people in medina when a trade caravan is coming in they would go out of the city boundaries and they would intercept them and they would essentially engage in uh, what we call asymmetry of information in modern terms so they would convey some uh, you know misinformation about the demand in the city and they would also convey a wrong information on part of those traders back to the city mm-hmm. so these middlemen became uh, more be maybe more rich by exploiting uh, by exploitation of information uh, in that date uh, 1400 years ago but when the prophet uh, uh, actually uh, prohibited this practice he barred this practice and he's he said that it's unfair for both the customers and for the incoming traders to have this agency Uh, and he actually d- uh, defined a physical boundary within the city of Medina where trade would, would take place and in he also said that no transaction would happen outside this uh, this boundary line uh, where he also wanted market inspectors so he also introduced other rules uh, uh, which is essentially fair fair trade rules that no one should be cheated no one should be exploited the weights and measures should be reliable the contract should be enforced so there is a list of these uh, terms of reference uh, which we find uh, for that institution called hisba and that institution is a institution of, ma- of consumer protection but then interestingly 
it does does not have a mandate to control prices. It's so anything but control prices directly. So maybe not yes. even a floor or or neither a ceiling. Yes, that's that's also interesting. I mean, there there was there was a time in actually um, the second caliph of uh, Islam, um, Sayyidna Umar, when he was walking in a bazaar and he saw a trader, uh, someone was selling dates below the market price, and he actually stopped him hmm. first, and he said, "No, you're not allowed. You're you're sort of uh, spoiling this market, underselling the market." Right? So it happens. Every day, it's, it's a commonplace observation. So he went back, and later he revised his judgment, and he came back and he said, "No, you have the freedom to sell at the price which you wish." So, and of course, this is all about history. We cannot be hundred percent accurate about what really transpired because some books have reported this full event, and some reports it. Some reports have uh, narrated this event only halfway hmm. when Umar sort of stopped. the under selling uh, so it is a matter of historical interpretation uh, but i think it still gives us some idea of the kind of regulations the uh, islamic economic framework should have and the other principle uh, the other sort of consumer protection which was very explicit uh, was uh, uh, the principle of ihtikar uh, which is when you you know as as a, as a trader you stock um and you sit on the stock of goods and do not sell it and so uh, what what is happening is uh, you know you you essentially want to exploit the price level going up and then you can sell so it's kind of like hoarding it is hoarding exactly okay. so of course hoarding was also a common practice now it is interesting what do we do with hoarders so uh the the president which umar um uh, you know established was that he used to force the hoarders to open uh, especially when it was for food stuff hmm. to open their warehouses and he used to force buy uh the produce so force buy at the permanent market price right so he didn't deprive them of the current market price even though it was discovered they were hoarding but then he also didn't let consumers deprive because of the unnecessarily uh, long uh, warehousing of a good which is needed so uh, he struck this middle path but this seems to be like like some sort of coercion to for him to sell even though the practice is unjust but i thought that free free market means that they are free to do whatever they want even if it's not just in that sense so that's like how how do I you i think that's the that's a that's an important point uh the, you know the, the the there's one important principle in the islamic jurisprudence which is no harm principle hmm so no harm principle is essentially means that you are free to do what you want but it should not harm others i see okay and 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 this is a well established principle of islamic law and what happens in the case of hoarding that yes he is free to buy and 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 hoard his stuff but at the same time we know that given the conditions at that time it is harmful for those people who do not have something to eat in the night it it is essentially a public safety is it's a risk for life right so a, a just ruler would come in and say well look the businessman and well, you you have imported and you have a right to share your to earn your due profit but right. now we see that you are actually exploiting that 
private property. I see. So it, yeah. will, it will just intervene. So this is more this is more towards things that are necessary rather than like say an overpriced toy, for example. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a then that because it would point. Yeah. So 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 actually there was this distinction between let's say imported uh, food stuff and imported uh, uh, non food stuff. So these same restrictions were not imposed on non food stuff in which you can you can you can buy you can take risk and um, and you can essentially stock for the okay. time and, and sell when it is dear well clearly like um like since islam is uh, a religion that is mostly focused on trading it's clear that they do uh, try to promote wealth creation maybe you can go on to your next one like how much wealth can they make really into the principle uh, into your third principle which is distribution uh, right, so um, so it is connected. So first, there is a, a theory of ownership, and then uh, then theory of wealth creation, and then theory or principle of wealth distribution. Uh, now, it is it, you know it's also introduced some certain limits. So, for instance, a basic principle which Quran defines that in your property, in your property, which means in your private property essentially uh, there are rights for those who claim and there are rights for those who do not claim what do we mean by that so essentially what this principle is saying that um, for instance you have uh, family members who will become your heir uh, and you have also destitute and the poor in the society uh, who will probably not be able to claim directly from you but they are there and it is there is a fair share in your property for them and the instruments which Islam uses of, uh, are different. So, for instance, one is uh, the principle of uh, the inheritance, which is for family uh, and the members of the family. Um, then uh, we have, of course, the instrument of zakat, uh, which is the obligatory taxation. Uh, we also have this uh, emphasis on, on sadaqah, the voluntary spending, uh, which is for the poor at the society at a broader level. Um, so. And so you'll see that zakat is well defined into certain categories, but but sadaqat, uh, voluntary spending, is not as more broadly at social level. Uh, maybe you can expand that on a little bit. Like I always assume that zakat is for those who are poor, for example, uh, for the poor, you know, to help more the people in need. Um, why is it? Why is there a separation between zakat and sadaqah? So there is there is one legal separation. For instance, uh, the sadaqat can be both for Muslims and non-Muslims, and zakat is meant for hmm. only Muslims. So there is that distinction. Uh, but I, I think at a at a, at a more um, principle level, the uh, Quran itself has defined uh, eight uh, pl is, uh, uh, places or eight. Um, destinations of zakat spending i see and so there have been you know, quite evolution in uh, in the understanding of those uh, eight um, purposes right. say. but um, you know for instance quran says that a, a part of it is mentioned for uh, people uh, who are traveling so what do we mean by that so it means by the infrastructure it can mean uh, roads. It can mean the the, the petrol pumps right. on, on 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 a highway, the the, the rest stops. So so this, you know, and and if you can imagine, this this already is a, is huge. 
Mm. This kind of infrastructure is huge. So it's not be just poor people spending. I see. I see. It can be for general social causes. Um, uh, and then also there is uh, this one purpose, which is to um, uh, people which is that to get to set people free from burdens, which was essentially a tool to to when there was slavery as a social custom to actually mm. let people uh, get rid of slavery. So people used to pay for it. Uh, but of course, now the slavery in that sense is not non-existent. But there could be other kind of slavery, under debtness, someone is under debt, and so you can help him. He could be a very rich person. I mean, that can fellow doing business, but business bankrupt, and then he's under debt. Mm. He's not a poor person, right? In a in a conventional sense, and it's more towards somebody who needs help. It's more towards. So actually, if you see, it's 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 actually not towards not not just for poor at all. Mm. It has very broad social purpose. And therefore, one one would question, and we can discuss about later, uh, that what is actually zakat means today. One thing that I have read, if I'm in your book, that I want to ask is that I mean, I know this is something you expand more uh, later in the book, which we will later in the podcast as well. So, can you tell me, like, say you say that on my death, uh, I would have distribution of wealth um, to my family, but let's say that. I don't have a family, and and a death sudden be, suddenly befell me before I had to. I get to write a will to distribute it. What happens to my wealth? Does it that the state just gets all of it? So the Islamic inheritance law, in that sense, is uh, very straightforward. It it a, it has uh, elaborate rules of distribution of it. And remember, when these laws was were introduced, uh, these fixed shares in inheritance were not in place, especially for uh, for women. There were no share in the property. I mean, mm. they were considered a property themselves. Oh, interesting. Um, socially, but there was no share for them in their property. So actually, Islam introduced those those shares for property for them. And in in general, in principle, the state does not inherit anything from the inheritance. The exception is only when the person who dies is without here. And in that case, state actually state actually inherits the property. And then it can be put to use as per the state priorities. But I think that is a, a kind of a rule which has been defined to just uh, clarify. But I, I imagine that it is a, it is not a commonplace observation to mm-hmm. see you know you, when you, t- you 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 live in a family, so you have brothers or sisters or parents or your your sons and daughters. So you you know you might have someone of that, mm-hmm. and yeah. so it's very difficult to actually conceive you will have no heir at all. All right. Okay. I get it. Okay. Uh, so on that note, I think that's a good place to stop for now. So thank you very much. Um, and it's been a pleasure to uh, have you, Ali. Uh, any like um, last thing you wanna you wanna close on the principles that you've put forth, the three principles you put forth. So just to just to summarize, um, mm-hmm. I have introduced uh, that the Islamic economic framework comprises of uh, three principles. First principle is the theory and principle of ownership, which divides property into two spheres, private property and public property. Second principle is uh, the principle of wealth creation, which essentially depends on the uh, idea of voluntary trade and uh, open free market pricing. And uh, the third principle is the theory of uh, wealth distribution, which says that 
in the property which you own in your private property, you have um, uh, you are obliged uh, to pay for others. So others meaning your family members or or members of the society at broad level have uh, the right share in your private property. All right. So that's that should be the, uh, it for this episode. So uh, so dear listeners. Uh, Catch us next week again, in which we will be discussing further in into this part, uh, this three principles, uh, and we will talk about the institutional tenets of Islamic economic frame- framework. So join us next week for this two second episode of the four of this four part part of Islam and Liberty Network. Uh, and again, thank you, Ali, for um, coming in here, uh, and hopefully we'll see you then. Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed and want to find out more about us or any topic, find us on islamandlibertynetwork.org. And I would like to wish you a happy Ramadan. See you next week.